Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe Asia at La Trobe University. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and today, a podcast from Manila in the Philippines. In 2022, the Philippines elected a new president, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., and with him came a pivot in international views, particularly towards China and the United States. The previous administration, led by Rodrigo Duterte, had embraced China and the development opportunities it had to offer. And while Marcus Jr. could continue this, it might be tinged with slightly less enthusiasm. It was our independence as well. Uh, from uh, perhaps we will continue what uh, President Duterte has started, what has been described as an independent foreign policy. And this is what we feel is best in the national interest. And I think it is to be advantageous not only to our friends in China, but to all our friends around the world. Today's guest has been keeping a close eye on the Philippines' international outlook. I am Aris Arugay, currently professor and chairperson of the Department of Political Science, University of the Philippines, Diliman. The Philippines has historically been seen as a close ally of the United States. That changed a bit under the leadership of Duterte, but now could see a balance coming back to that. Well, there's been what we'd call a acceleration of deepening relations with China under the previous administration of Rodrigo Duterte. Mm. Uh, Many pundits and many observers have called it a strategy of the former President Duterte to pivot the country's foreign policy away from the West and towards China. Mm -hmm. And uh, this entailed not just necessarily deepening and thickening and even broadening of relationships with China, which kind of got compromised and uh, really had a freeze during the Aquino administration from 2010 to 2016. But relationship of the Philippines in China correspondingly resulted in a way a worsening of the relationship of the Philippines with the West, particularly the United States and to some extent the European Union. Mm -hmm. In a way, Duterte's rationale for this is that the Philippines should veer away from traditional partners. He thought that Philippine national interests were not served because of its long-standing historical inclination towards the West. But we all know that Duterte has the viewpoint of a lot of what we call populist authoritarian leaders who don't only have a disdain for democracy and particularly human rights, but also questions what we call the rules-based international order. Mm-hmm. So together with um, Xi Jinping and possibly even Putin, Duterte feels that the Philippines was severely compromised before, and he thought that its best bet is to pivot to China. Unfortunately, on the part of Duterte's campaign or crusade to be near to China, his six-year term did not really deliver tangible or very concrete results. In a way, that the rhetoric of Duterte didn't match actual policy outcomes and mm-hmm. alternatives. And we can discuss this more, like uh, what happened to the BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative projects in the Philippines, etc. So you say there's not a lot tangible as a result of this openness to China, but you use the terms deepening, broadening, and something else which 
sounded campaign sloganish. Thickening. Uh, thickening. <laughs> so what was the extent of that? Was it just a, a change in disposition in the leadership level? Right. In a way, it also matches some discontent on the part of certain sectors in Philippine society and even within the Philippine state. Because I think the allure of, of China to small states like the Philippines in the Indo-Pacific is concomitant to the perception of declining U.S. security commitments. Mm -hmm. uh, we all know that the Philippines is the oldest ally of the United States in Asia, and it's the only Southeast Asian country that has a mutual defense treaty. The Philippines has a treaty with Thailand, but it's not really couched within the San Francisco system of alliances, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that over the years, somehow, particularly after the U.S. left its bases in the Philippines in the early 90s, and even with 9-11, there was an increasing perception among Philippine bureaucrats as well as Philippine politicians that the U.S. has not fully committed itself into the alliance. For example, during the Obama's visit to the Philippines when Manila hosted the APEC summit, it took some cajoling for him to deliver a ironclad commitment that the U.S. will defend the Philippines in case there's foreign aggression in the South China Sea, mm -hmm. right? In fact, this perception significantly shaped Philippine foreign policy and political elites to somehow draw the U.S. closer because, as we all know, U.S. foreign policy, while rhetorically, has said that Asia is in its gaze, we all know that in terms of resources, in terms of attention, it's not really in Asia, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. It's only very recently that they're trying to match uh, what they are saying only because of the increasing assertiveness and to some extent aggression of China in the region and to what extent it is affecting not necessarily just the Philippines, but its other allies in East Asia. Okay. And the more open view of China that resulted from the Duterte government, was there much tangible that was deliverable of that? There was some engagement with the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, I noticed there's a, a shiny new bridge in Manila. And there are other bridges and projects, but from your perspective, is that a huge amount of engagement or just part of what the Philippines could have achieved if there was true engagement? We actually undertook a study on to what extent the Philippine participation in the Belt and Road Initiative delivered concrete infrastructure projects because prior to Duterte's assumption into office, there was a perception of a infrastructure deficit. Mm -hmm. There wasn't enough investments. That was one of his campaign slogans, wasn't it? It was build, build, build. Exactly. So supposedly on paper, there's mm. a complete overlap between build, build, build mm. and the Belt and Road Initiative. Sure. But somehow we all know that the devil is in the detail. When it came to the implementation, the Duterte administration saw that it was almost impossible to implement it within the six-year term of his administration. Mm -hmm. And even though there is a desire to accelerate the process, Philippine bureaucratic processes in public projects, particularly big-ticket projects like infrastructure, takes a long time. It has something to do with our laws. It has something to do with the constraints put by institutions and legal frameworks, ironically, to avoid corruption. Because mm. in the past, big public infrastructure projects, particularly with China, 
have been divulged as being anomalous. Uh, there have been plunder cases that have been filed, for example, with former President Gloria Macapagal Arroyo and some of her appointed officials. And this somehow informed that if we're going to engage in such, particularly with China, beyond the Duterte administration, we might even be talking about economic planners, bureaucrats who will stay beyond the Duterte administration. There's a lot of we would call it bureaucratic delay, but there's a lot of vetting processes. Mm. And somehow this has taken some time. So even if there's a command from the top. On day one of on the day, administration. Right, right. In other words, I think there's some institutional constraints that have been put. And uh, this is because while Duterte might made some autocratic or authoritarian moves that somehow eroded democracy in the Philippines, the country still operates in such a framework mm. that there is still institutional restraint or, or powers that limits his ability. If we have a less democratic regime in place, possibly it would have delivered a quick result. But unfortunately, Duterte had to face all of these constraints. And of course, the pandemic also has, has yes. an impact. So mm -hmm. therefore, all these resulted in at the end of the Duterte administration, I think one study said that only 10% of those pledged and those that were signed in terms of projects resulted into actual deliverables. Okay. I would also want to make the case that if there has been a lot of progress in, in China-invested uh, projects in the Philippines, one might have to check with Duterte's turf in Davao. Mm. There has been some progress there. But because of the local government back then, the mayor is Duterte's daughter, who is now currently vice president. Right. Yes. So in a way, the local, national, and China interface was a bit more less cumbersome. Mm. It's a totally entire game when it's in Manila or mm -hmm. it's in other places in the country. Okay. All right. So it sounds like from your tone that there's a bit of frustration that there wasn't more projects achieved, that there wasn't more tangible things that you can point to. But what is the public perception like then of China? Part of the Belt and Road Initiative hope for China is that there's a better perception of China and what can be achieved if you embrace their kindness. Right, right. Is that having an effect in... Uh, <laughs> no, you're shaking your head. In right, the right. What, what, what's the perception uh, Unfortunately, like? yeah. despite the hard sell of former President Duterte, that China is a friend, China is reliable, mm. uh, China, unlike the US, will not abuse us those kinds of uh, sales talk didn't really resulted in conversion on the part of the Filipino public. Yeah. If we rely on, on public opinion, trust ratings of different countries, even despite Duterte's prodding, China is still considered to be the least trusted major power in the country. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is despite a lot of supposedly investments coming in, Chinese tourism, tourists resulting in more revenue for, for the Philippine economy, despite an increased people-to-people -people exchange and even exchanges in terms of institutions, the security sector, the bureaucracy, etc. It did not result in an improvement on how the public views China. Mm -hmm. And in fact, uh, what was sustained is that while China is the least trusted country, the U.S. remains the most trusted country 
by the Filipino public in general. Interesting. But yeah. in my study with, with other international relations scholars, we actually ask foreign and security policy elites on their perceptions of major powers from the U.S. to Australia to Japan until Russia and China. And in our study of more than 700 foreign policy and security elites, these mm. could be uniformed officials, bureaucrats, yeah, researchers. Yeah. We found out that Japan and the U.S. are the most trusted. Australia came in third. Okay. And China is dead last. Wow. As a country where in the Philippines... Our question was, uh, which of the following countries should the Philippines have strategic partnerships with or, mm -hmm. or deeper security cooperation? Yes. And yeah. the result was China was still at the last. So in a way, you would think that under Duterte's uh, pivot to China, that he would be able to convince even the security community in the Philippines, like the strategic community of foreign and security policy elites. But according to our survey, it almost mirrors the public opinion surveys yeah. uh, that China is least trusted while the U.S. is most trusted. Mm, mm. What is behind this distrust then? I know that there's a lot of uh, tension and activity in the East China Sea. And right. I, I did notice before you didn't call it the West Philippine Sea, which I'm, right. I'm a bit surprised of. Right. Uh, but I know that there's been tension there and that that will continue to be attention. Right. So is that what is mainly behind it? <laughs> I make a distinction between the West Philippine Sea and the South China Sea because the South China Sea is bigger. Mm. And because I think the audience is mostly foreign for this. Fair for enough. This yeah. also. <laughs> for me, it's like when I call it South China Sea, it is in solidarity with the other claimants, right? Mm -hmm. Because China is not just intruding into the West Philippine Sea, it is intruding into the entirety of, of the South China Sea. But if it's a mainly domestic audience, okay. rest assured, uh, it's WPS more than SES that, that I use. But the roots of this, I think, is historic. I mean, before the Scarborough Shoal standoff, China's behavior as far as the South China Sea, because in the 90s it was still called South China Sea, the mischief reef incident also was imprinted in the minds of a lot of Filipinos on how China is untrustworthy mm -hmm. uh, in terms of a neighbor to the extent that, so if you look at public opinion surveys, China's behavior, according to Filipinos in the West Philippine Sea, is considered to be violating Philippine national interests. But apart from that, I think China is also seen as a communist country. Mm -hmm. The anti-communist sentiment in the Philippines is quite high. Yes. And in fact, this is something that confounds a lot of Filipinos, I think, because China is considered communist, Duterte is pro-China, but Duterte is domestically anti-communist. Mm -hmm. yeah, and and yeah. historically, the Philippine Communist Party has roots from Maoism, mm. which could be traced to China. So all of these contradictions somehow confuses Filipinos in a way that they see the president, okay, you're pro-China, but you're against the Communist Party of the Philippines. Mm. But China is ruled by the Communist Party. All of this adds to that. And I think it has also something to do with stereotypes of China. It's not as high as our neighbors in Southeast Asia, though. I think this has also something to do with the fact that a lot of Filipinos have Chinese heritage. And in fact, uh, according to some anthropologists, almost 80% of Filipinos can 
connect themselves to Chinese descent. Yeah, okay. So, but we also have ethnic Chinese elites in the country, particularly in the economy, that somehow captures a huge chunk of the Philippine economy. So I think, in a way, that contributes perhaps to the anti-Chinese sentiment. There's this discontent, as you may see, for example, in other Southeast Asian countries, mm-hmm. like Indonesia, perhaps, or even Malaysia, for example. I think all of that contributes to this negative uh, image of China. But I think the prevailing attitude of most Filipinos is that it can't be trusted. And relative to other countries in the West, they always think that we're better off. So this is something that Duterte wasn't able to to change yeah, despite yeah. six years of being in power. Okay, so you now have a, a new president, President Marcos, who came to power this year, and uh, he has vowed to defend and promote the country's national interests, given the increasing rivalry between the US and China. So how do you anticipate the dynamic might change? Is there going to be a pivot back to... American engagement or is using the term pivot too strong a term for what's going to happen? Right. One thing is for sure, Marcos doesn't have the negative historical and even personal baggage against the U.S. unlike former President Duterte, Mm -hmm. even though we can argue that they could have a gripe against the U.S. given their ouster from power in the 1980s supposedly had some U.S. support. Right? However, the relationship of the Marcos family with the U.S. goes a long way historically. Mm. Mm. Marcos Sr.'s martial law regime, in fact, received a lot of support from the United States. So they're not actually as estranged like Duterte, who doesn't really have those deep connections historically. Yeah. Right? So that's one thing. So in a way, this cordial stance, or at least non-antagonistic stance, with the U.S. is something that I think the Marcos Jr. administration will likely pursue. And in fact, it's so quick, like barely six months into office, major U.S. officials have already visited the Philippines. Marcos has, in fact, continued the promised implementation of the Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement, what we call EDCA, Mm. that was uh, forestalled. There there was very little progress during the Duterte administration, right? And I think that's one outcome of the visit of Vice President Kamala Harris, is the identification of which facilities, military facilities, would be implemented under EDCA. This means that U.S. forces could have temporary basing, right? Because Foreign bases are banned under our 1987 constitution. Yeah, I was about to say, that'd be a huge development if they did. It it is. And I think, of course, they're not saying it, and you won't see it in formal statements. But for geopolitical analysts, this has something to do with the region's hottest flashpoint, the Taiwan Strait. You don't need to be a geopolitical expert. You just need to look at the map. If conflict starts in the Taiwan Strait, The frontline state, of course, apart from the two across the strait, is the Philippines. Yes. Luzon Island, the northern part of the Philippines, where the Marcoses come from, is actually less than 100 kilometers Mm. from the island, from Taiwan. So therefore, I think the Philippines is a critical pillar in U.S. strategy in the Indo-Pacific right now. Mm -hmm. It is, of course, among many, a critical pillar in its geopolitical strategy with China. And therefore, I think 
when it was clear that Marcos Jr. would, would win, the U.S. didn't waste any time to start reaching out and uh, talking and communicating. I think this is the error that the U.S. committed in 2016 when Duterte won the elections. They did not make the same approach. On the other hand, China was quick. Quick to pick up the phone. But, but yeah. they already have deep relations with Duterte when he was mayor of Davao. So mm. they followed it up. Unfortunately for the U.S., they not only canceled Duterte's visa when he was mayor because of the allegations of extrajudicial killings in his own drug war in Davao. Yeah. But I was told that there are other personal historical gripes of the former president with the United States. Mm. Okay, okay. So there would have been many uh, within the Biden administration who were very relieved to see uh, Marcos win given his disposition towards the United States and the current tension with China over Taiwan. Right. However, I would think that this is something that Marcos attempts or seeks to balance. It seems like he is trying to approach it in a way that he's going to be very cordial, very open to U.S. engagement. He's not going to antagonize the United States, the VFA the Mutual Defense Treaty, mm. these are safe under yeah. his administration. Although there's a news item that the Mutual Defense Treaty is up for review. Mm -hmm. For me, I mean, that's not necessarily mean that Marcos is going to do a Duterte in terms of relationship with the United States. However, what he's trying to do is keep China also close in a way that he's not necessarily going to antagonize China. Mm -hmm. So it's not just going to be a flip of what Duterte did, being friendly to China and then antagonistic with the U.S. The correspondence will not necessarily happen under the Marcos administration because he has very close relationship with China. There's a consulate in his own fiefdom in Ilocos. There's a Chinese consulate there. Yeah. And I think he visited China earlier than he would visit the United States mm. as a state visit. There might be complications because, as we all know, there's a, a court ruling in the U.S., a contempt of court conviction against Marcos Jr. Mm -hmm. And there are also other cases that wherein decisions are requiring the Marcos family to pay certain amounts of money mm -hmm. and there's been no action on the part of the Marcos family. So all of these, I think, calculations. Also, at the end, I think, if you're going to analyze Marcos's foreign policy, you have to make, perhaps, a distinction between whether actions benefit the Philippine national interest, as Marcos Jr., his own administration's interest, and the interest of the Marcos family. Yeah, okay, okay. So... It would be great if all those three, like a Venn diagram, would completely overlap. The entire country, the Filipino people, would be worse off if they become mutually exclusive. Mm. Because we all know if it's the protection of the national interest and the protection of the politician's interest, I think we all know where the politician would go. I leave it as a question because yes, yeah. I know if there are trolls who are listening, 
I'll get a hit again, but I mean, I'm used to that. Okay, okay. So uh, as a result of all of this, do you think that the engagement with China will continue at the same rate that it did under the Duterte government? Do you think that there will still be uh, Belt and Road Initiative projects continuing at the same rate or accelerated given that they've been going for quite a long time? Uh, do you think there'll be the same amount of investment and interest at least from China for engagement? Right, right. I think under Marcus Jr., he both has fortune on his side, but he also has some challenges because unlike Duterte, he came to power in the Philippines not in the most auspicious of circumstances. Mm. The pandemic has really made us the worst performing economy in the ASEAN region. We haven't fully recovered economically. This global inflation wave is hitting the country very hard. Marcos Jr. is not enjoying the fiscal space that Duterte enjoyed. The country is in debt. Under Duterte, it has borrowed extensively. Mm. And therefore, this will have an impact on the flexibility or the maneuvering ability of the Marcos Jr. administration. Because at the end, he will have to make tough policy choices given the economic crunch mm. that the country is facing. I said he's also fortunate because this might mean that if his economic policy would require, of course, the continuation of this infrastructure building, this might be a way for us to get out of our economic slump, although we've been growing possibly 7%. But many economic planners are saying that it will take a couple more years for the Philippines to get back on track pre-pandemic. For Marcos, this only means that unlike the Duterte administration, he has expanded the repertoire of possible sources of investment. Because under Duterte, there were really non-negotiables. Like, even if they have infrastructure needs, you wouldn't see the Duterte administration really cooperating with countries in the West to fill those okay, projects. Okay. Right? But under Marcos' administration, there's going to be a bit more diversity. So the tender's a bit more open for right, projects. Right. So yeah. if the Marcos administration will play this smartly, then they will have to tell all those interested to invest from all of these countries mm. that you might have to give us the best deal. We're not there's not going to be a default source, mm. unlike under Duterte, who, who simply says, oh, most of it should go to China. But in fact, if you would look, some of the big infrastructure projects, some of those didn't really go to China. Like the subway project here in Manila went to Japan, right? But only because even despite Duterte's pivot to China, a lot of the economic planners still saw that the Japanese are better at building trains, more reliable. Okay. Right? It's more expensive, but I think this is where the divergence or the gap between the pivot to China rhetoric at the top mm. and how it actually trickles down to the actual implementers, mm. the bureaucracy. Okay, okay. Just to finish up then, are you hopeful for the Philippines going forward on the international stage, it sounds like it's going to be a much more rounded outlook is what I'm getting. So how do you think the perception of the Philippines might change on the international level? Right. Despite the criticism towards Marcus Jr. that he has been traveling a lot, like he's barely six months into office and he's had like maybe five trips abroad, I do think that as someone who studies international relations, this is necessary because... His uh, predecessor, 
former President Duterte, is the only Philippine president in history who has never officially visited a Western country. Mm. In a way, this reintroduction to the world stage, I think, is good, in a way, right? But we all know that this must be matched by substantive performance. So it's one thing for the Philippine president, Marcos Jr., to go around the country, rebrand the Philippines. Because under Duterte, there's been some mixed signals on how Philippine credibility has been appreciated or reputation. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we fight for human rights. Sometimes we withdraw from human rights instruments like the Rome Statute. So it's kind of conflicted. But under Marcos Jr., there might be a bit more consistency. However, having said this, I do think that we must make a distinction of whose reputation is actually being improved or enhanced here. Is it really the country's reputation Mm. or is it the reputation of the Marcos family? Because his own ally said that his trips abroad and all this meetings internationally is to rebrand the Marcos image. But as you said earlier, I think in those instances, there's enough overlap of your Venn diagram for the Philippines to benefit from a Marcos rebranding. Yeah, possibly. So so that's the more optimistic scenario here, right? But I do also think of a scenario wherein the overlap will be very minimal, almost absent. Mm. So, for example, when it deals with China, when it deals with the United States, we must make sure that it is really Philippine interest. And it's not just derivative. Knowing Philippine politics, sometimes it's a huge thing to ask from our political elites. That was Aries Uragai, Professor of Political Science at the University of the Philippines, and you have been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe Asia at La Trobe University. If you'd like to follow Aries on Twitter, he is at Aries Uruguay, and La Trobe Asia is at La Trobe Asia. This podcast is produced at the Bandura campus of La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia, on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.